seated. Uh, this is something different than our normal Christmas services as far as where we're looking today, but I think it is, it is, it is perfect for us to do this. We want to continue to talk about redemption's love story. It's something we think about at Christmas, certainly, that, that it is a love story. God loved us so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's certainly a Christmas story that, that we, uh, or a rather a love story that we think about at Christmas. But I'd like to see it in terms of Ruth's love story. I want us to see again in, in the book of Ruth, and this today we're going to be in chapter 2, and I want us to see uh, this continuing story of redemption's love, and, and, and we will discover that it certainly fits Christmas time as well. And, and so it's a, it's a unique study. It's a study, like I said, that I'm excited about. It, it, it's fun for me to do this study, to, to consider these things. And, and so I would invite you, if you've opened already to the book of Ruth, chapter 2, and then let's pray. Father, we recognize this is your word. It's what you have given to us. You have revealed yourself in it. And today, Father, as we look at the second chapter here, Lord, I pray your blessing on our time. I pray that you would guide this time, that your word would be preeminent, that Jesus Christ would be exalted, and that the Holy Spirit would be at work in each life in this place. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like most all of you, I can look back on my life and I can see certain days that have had a huge impact. I mean, a, a great impact. In fact, you could say these are days that have changed the course of my life. I remember graduating from high school. It was a pretty impactful day because I was going, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I knew I'd been called into the ministry, but I didn't feel like going to school yet. Um, but it was a pretty impactful day. And then there was that day, August the 3rd of 1985, when I became a husband to a most beautiful and amazing woman. And uh, we have been married for over 32 years, which has been amazing to me. But it, it had an impact, August 3rd, 1985. And then I remember there, there's this incredible date, July 25th, 1989, when I became a dad for the very first time, to a little girl. And my first thoughts were, as she came into this world, oh no, she's going to date boys. It was horrible, but what an impact she had on my life. And then April 30th of, of 1891, or 1991, sorry, you're not that old, are you, honey? <laughs> I became a dad again to another girl, and now my life was wrecked. I had two girls to to protect and care for. And then there was the April 6th of 1995 date when my son was born, and now I was a dad of a boy, you know? I love my girls to death, but there's something about being the dad of a boy, you know? Anyway, so I became that. And then I remember in 1990, this is jumping back a little bit, but in 1990, I remember a day when, when Mona and I packed up Kara, who was 18 months old, and, and Courtney was in mommy's tummy, and we moved from Salem, Oregon, on down to Rogue River because I had been called 
to be the youth pastor there. I remember that day well, what a huge impact it had on my life. And, and then I remember other days, like in 2001, coming here, and there was a vote taken in this very place, and I became the associate pastor at then what was called uh, Madras Conservative Baptist Church. And then three years later, I, another vote was taken, and I became senior pastor. There's many days that I can look at that say, They've had a huge impact on my life. They've actually changed the course of my life. You've had that too, I'm sure. Maybe it's the day you got married. Maybe it's the day you had kids. Maybe it's the day you entered into a a career. Maybe it's the day that you retired. Or maybe the day that you had grandkids. Uh, Whatever day it might be, we all have those days where we are changed forever because of those days. When we last left Ruth... It had been a long 10 years. Chapter 1 takes, course, or takes place within the course of 10 years. And in, and in chapter 1, we see this darkness overtaking a woman's life. Her name is Naomi. And, and first, it's, it's dark because of the time in which she lives. It's the days in which the judges ruled, a shadowy time to be sure. On top of that, there's famine in Bethlehem. The house of bread has no bread in it. On top of that, Naomi, along with her husband Elimelech, take their two boys, Malon and Chilion, and they move out of Bethlehem, their home, and they move into a foreign country. They go into Moab. And it's there in Moab that Naomi's Facebook status changes from happily married to widowed. And then it changes once again to being the mom of two boys to being a mom of no children. And, and, and times get bleak, get dark, get horrible because she's left without children and she's left without grandchildren. And you know how dark that would be to be without grandchildren. And so she moves back into Bethlehem. And what we noticed last week is that darkness has affected her. In fact, she tells the people in Bethlehem, do not call me Naomi anymore because that means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara. That means bitter because that's what I am. I'm a bitter old lady. God has been against me. I went out full. I've come back empty. Ten-year span. But when we get to chapter 2, we see a one-day event. We see, as the old early morning news show says, what a difference a day makes. In this one day, Naomi will go from from just living in the ordinary to watching the astonishing happen. She will go in this one day from being a bitter old lady to being a woman who is able to praise the covenant-keeping God. In this one day, we will see as, as God works in a desperate situation, and once again, at the end of chapter 2, Naomi has hope. What a difference a day is going to make. Last week, we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, this introduction to a man by the name of Boaz. In fact, this storyteller, who is a master storyteller, he, he, he almost inserts verse 1 of chapter 2 just as an interruption. For we read in verse 1 of chapter 2, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And we're reading this and we're going, okay, great. Why did you introduce us to Boaz? Yes, he's a worthy man, which probably means he's a well-respected man there in in Bethlehem. Uh, He's a, a wealthy man, as we'll come to find out, but... But he gives us a little hint. 
This Boaz, who is wealthy and worthy and respected, is also a relative of Naomi's deceased husband. And we're going, what role is Boaz going to have in this story? Because it goes right from that introduction of who Boaz is to verse 2. Naomi and Ruth get back to Bethlehem. They find a house, and here's what we read in verse 2 of chapter 2. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grains after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. Now what, what Ruth is doing here is she's talking about the Old Testament's way of taking care of the poor and the sojourner. It's, it's their welfare system, if you will. In Leviticus chapter 19, God gives this command to his people in verses 9 and 10. We read this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Instead, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. See, God put into play this welfare system, this this way to take care of the poor and and, and the foreigners, the sojourners who were going through Israel, who needed some sort of sustenance. And and so Ruth must have heard about this. Perhaps Naomi told her, and, and Ruth says, why don't you let me do that? Why don't you let me become a gleaner? Why don't you let me go out into the field, and I will I will." take care of us. I will provide for us. And so it's no wonder that in verse 2, Naomi says, um, excuse me, where am I? Oh, and she said to her, go my daughter, just to fulfill that Old Testament command. But notice verse 3. Verse 3, don't miss the irony here. Don't miss the the, the humor here, because here's what happens. Verse 3 says, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reaper's And notice this statement. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. What? She happened. By chance, Ruth just happened to make her way to the field of this one who we were introduced to in verse 1 and left going, what's up with Boaz? Well, here now we come to recognize Ruth just happened. When that statement is there that she just happened, you need to understand, that's this master storyteller just playing with us. In the Hebrew, it literally reads, Ruth, her chance, chanced upon the field of Boaz. I mean, the emphasis is on this chance, by chance. But we know better, don't we? And and the storyteller is, is doing this just to play with us because he wants us to know better. It's not by karma. It's not by chance. It's, it's not just this little thing that happened by coincidence. It's all under God's providential plan for Ruth and Naomi. So when he says she happened to, we know, ah, God is at work here. And she ends up gleaming gleaning in the field of Boaz, who is not just a worthy man, who is not just a wealthy man, but he is a relative of Elimelech. Oh, now this is getting good. This is getting good. And what happens here, brothers and sisters in Christ, is this. We have music that begins, at least in my mind. As I'm reading this second act of this four-part play, this music starts, and it's a waltz. 
Right? I don't know how to dance exactly. I'm just faking it to get your attention here because you're thinking of, I don't know. Anyway, so, so there's this music that happens. And, and what we see now is, although it's not a, a literal dance between Ruth and Boaz... In my mind, I like to think of this dance happening because we see it going back and forth and we see Ruth and we see her attractive humility. But then we see responding to that attractive humility is Boaz's alluring grace. And what we now have is this dance between attractive humility and alluring grace. And what I'd like to do is go quickly through this, but just point these things out to you as the storyteller is revealing it to us. What we're going to come to understand by the end of verse 17 is this is an incredible, beautiful dance between humility and grace. And it starts with humility. Notice what happens. Boaz, in verse 4, just again happens to come to that very same field where Ruth is. The storyteller gives us an understanding when he says, and behold. It's like, and behold. This is amazing. This is something that has happened. How could it be that Ruth just chanced to chance upon Boaz's field, and at the very same time, Boaz just happens to come to that field? But the storyteller tells us, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Now, here's a little taste of the character of, of Boaz here. He, he gives this common greeting, but you need to understand it was more than cliché. It, it, it was a greeting of, of, of God's presence to be understood in their life. May the Lord's presence be understood. May you come to realize the covenant keeping God is with you. That's what his greeting is. May he, may he show you his presence in your life. And, and he meant it. And I believe that when his workers responded, the Lord bless you, they meant it as well. Because they understood full well that if the covenant keeping God blessed Boaz, they would in turn be blessed. I believe they meant it. May he bless you so that some of that blessing will fall upon us as your workers in this harvest field. It's a bit of, it's a bit of the character of Boaz that's being revealed here. But notice what happens. See, again, in this play, not only has the waltz music started, but now we see on the stage all these gleaners, these, these people who would come after the harvesters, the, the reapers, and they were all there. They were picking up the remains. And, and what, I, what I imagine in my mind on stage happens is all of a sudden it gets dark except for one spotlight shining down on Ruth. You see it? I mean, it's right there. Because all of a sudden in verse 5, Boaz goes, hey, wait a minute. Who is this woman? Who is she? Notice verse 5. Um, then Boaz said to his young men who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Now it could be that he recognized all the other reapers and not her. It could be that she was still wearing funny clothes from Moab. and he rec Maybe he overheard her speaking and, and there was an accent that he, that he picked up on. And, and so he's asking about her. But I have a hunch. I have a hunch. It was her attractiveness that got his attention. 
Now, the scripture doesn't say anything about her looks. Scripture doesn't tell us how she must have had shimmering dark hair and, and, and piercing brown eyes and, and how her complexion was perfect. and doesn't say anything about her dress size. But there's something about Ruth, isn't there? Uh, see, I, I tend to think of Ruth as a very beautiful woman. And, and here's why. Because I've given Bible characters to my kids. And my oldest daughter, Kara, I gave her Ruth as the Bible character that most re- represents her character. And since my daughter's beautiful, Ruth has to be beautiful, right? That's how I justify it anyhow. But, but I think what, what attracts Boaz, in all honesty, to Ruth is her humility. Because he asks this question of his worker, who is this, this woman? Where is she from? And notice the answer given by his foreman. Verse 6, And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Now we're going to find in a moment that Boaz has already heard of Ruth. He hadn't quite seen Ruth, but he had heard of Ruth. And now he's got an idea of who she is. But notice the humility described by the foreman in verse 7. She said... Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a a short rest. What we understand are at least three characteristics of humility seen in Ruth as described by this foreman. And I'm going to go through them real quick, so you're just going to have to keep up. But notice, first of all, she asked permission. Ruth asked permission. Do you remember what I read just a little bit earlier in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10? She didn't need to ask permission. It was part of the Old Testament law. She had every right by the Old Testament law to go and to glean in the fields. It was already set up by God. It was already part of the Old Testament law. She didn't have to ask for permission. But the foreman is amazed because here comes a woman and she asks, may I glean in this field? She asks for permission. You see, pride, pride assumes and, and pride uh, insists, but humility asks, doesn't it? But secondly, notice in this statement at the end of verse 10, excuse me, not 10, I'm jumping way ahead. At the end of verse 7, it says, May she, she says, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Not only did she ask permission, a sign of humility, but now she rec- uh, uh, respects The proper order. I am to come as a gleaner after the reapers. You see, pride says, I insist on getting the best first, right? Pride says, I know I'm supposed to be here, but I want to be here and I deserve to be here. But not Ruth. She says, I know I'm the proper place. I I respect that. I understand that as a gleaner, I come in after the reapers. She understands that. But then notice At the end, so she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Another sign of of Ruth's humility is her strong work ethic. Church, I'm going to say something really quick in passing, but I feel I need to say it. This was God's welfare system given to his people to take care of the poor and those who were sojourning in the land. But he didn't tell them to sit at home, play your Xbox, and collect a welfare check. They were to go out and work for it. 
Enough said. Here's the point, though. Ruth went out and she worked hard. The foreman is amazed. He is impressed because she does not sit back and soak and sour. And and she doesn't even use uh, dependent upon the Lord as an excuse to become lazy. See, sometimes we use this statement, and I think it's true, but we got to be careful. Let go and let God. Have you heard that? Oh, absolutely. we gotta, we got to let God. But we've got to be willing to do what he calls us to do. When we say let go and let God, we don't mean sit at home and wait for something to happen, do we? See, Ruth didn't do that. Ruth went out. She had a strong work ethic. She was going to make it. She was going to make sure that her mother-in-law was taken care of along with herself. And so we see humility in that. So here's the first, the leading in this waltz. We see this attractive humility in Ruth. But now Boaz is going to match that attractive humility with his alluring grace. Notice what verse 8 says. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Boaz comes in. He has heard of her, as we're going to see in a moment. But he's heard of, his, of, of her character by the foreman and her humility. And he responds now in grace by providing for her. Do you remember when the book of Ruth takes place, when this true account happens? Remember chapter 1, verse 1? It's in the days when the judges ruled. Do you know what that time is defined as or described as? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no one who was policing over Boaz. Boaz could have easily said, "Uh uh-uh, get out of my field, and nobody would know the difference. Nobody would be there to to hold him accountable to the Old Testament law. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. But here's Boaz. In an act of grace, he says, yes, I'll provide. You you stay with my women. In fact, in this statement, he's saying, "You, you just come right alongside of them. He's almost promoting them to one of his own reaper, or her rather, to one of his own reapers. I mean, this is, this is incredible. And he's saying, I'm going to provide for you. But notice next, his grace is seen in that he's going to protect, protect her. Look at what it says in the middle of verse 9. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He's protecting her. Some suggest that what Ruth is saying here is he's protecting her from, from, from sexual misconduct by, by men. And that certainly could be the case. But there's even more at stake here. You see, the truth was, if a gleaner ended up gleaning in parts of a field that they were not to glean in yet, every right, the the, the owner of that field had every right to kick them out. To to get rid of them so that they, they aren't protected anymore by the gleaning of that field. But what Boaz is saying for sure here is, listen, I've told my men, even if you just chanced to go in the wrong area, I've told them to leave you alone. I've told them to not only just leave you alone, but you don't have to go clear to the well and draw out water for yourselves. You get to go right to the area that I've drawn out water. I had my servants drawn out water for my reapers. You can go right over there, and I can protect you in that way. So he provides, and he protects. 
Oh, the grace of Boaz. To which, now we go back to the humility in this dance. Now we're going to see a response from Ruth. Notice verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Her humility is further expressed in her gratitude. She is full of gratitude. She is incredibly thankful for what he is doing for her. So much so that she falls down at his feet in gratitude. I don't deserve... Thank you. This is amazing. How has it that I've found such favor in your eyes? I am so thankful. To which then an interesting thing takes place. Boaz, verse 11, answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. That's where I said Boaz had heard of Ruth. He hadn't seen her yet, but he heard her, heard of her. And so he's saying, hey, listen, I've heard all, it, all that, that has been said. It's been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Boaz was impressed with what she has done. She's given her, uh, her, her loyalty to her mother-in-law. And nextly, we see grace in verse 12 because he prays for her. He says, The Lord repay you for what you have done And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. His prayer is a prayer of blessing. This is alluring grace, is it not? He has heard of her, how she devoted herself to her mother-in-law. She pledged loyalty to her mother-in-law. But he sees this loyalty as a pledge to the one true living God, the covenant-keeping Yahweh, the Lord. May you be blessed, he prays. May he bless you, not just in part, but fully. Oh, the grace of Boaz. Now we see it being responded to. Now now Ruth continues on. Verse 13, Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant. Look, Look at this. Though I am not one of your servants... And in fact, back up in verse 10, she said, since I am a foreigner, here is yet another act or statement of humility. She recognizes she does not deserve this. I am a foreigner. I am someone who you should not take notice of. And he goes on, or she says then in verse 13, I am not one of your servants. Why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve this. Pride says, I deserve it and more. Humility says, I don't deserve what I have. And so Ruth reveals her humility again in this statement, to which now, hang on, because Boaz is going to show his grace two more times. Are you, are, you, are you with me? Are you following me? I know we're, we're dancing back and forth. That's why I called this a dance. It's, it's, it's this attractive humility being responded to by alluring grace then being responded to by attractive humility, and it just keeps going. But notice what happens, verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz says to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and notice this statement, brothers and sisters, and he passed to her 
roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had even some left over. Do you know what he's doing there? Here is Boaz, the owner of this field. He's not just providing for her, protecting her, and praying a blessing over her, but now we have this picture of him serving her. He serves Ruth, a foreigner. Not one of his servants, even lower than that. And he serves her this barley. So much so that she has some left over. And as we'll see, she brings it home that evening. So she sat beside him. She was satisfied. She had some left over. In verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young man, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles of her for her and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. One final act of grace before we close this scene out in the field on that day is that he provides for her future. He secures her future. He tells his, he tells his servants, Listen, don't bother her. And in fact, take some of the bundles that you've gathered and just drop them for her so that she has plenty, more than she needs. And what we discover in verse 17 is that is oh so true. She comes home that night with a bundle of barley. And we're going to talk about that in a second. I hope you see what we've noticed here is this dance between attractive humility and alluring grace. Does it remind us of another night? A night that we celebrate at Christmas time? Doesn't it remind us of when an infant was born, a, a child was born, and a son was given? It is at that event, at the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ, that this dance of redemption takes place. And at the birth of Jesus, we see both attractive humility and alluring grace all wrapped up in one. You see it? It's attractive humility in that Jesus being in the form of God, being equal with God, being God Himself, He considered that equality with God not something to be grasped. But He emptied Himself, and He humbled Himself, and He became a man. And He went even further than that. He became a servant. And He went further than that. Because after his birth, some 33 years later, he went to the cross and he humbly died on the cross. You see, at the birth of Christ, we see this attractive humility. He did this because he loves you. He did this because this is our redemption love story. It's the, our, the redemption dance. It is God the Son coming to this earth in full, attractive humility but Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says it was an act of God's grace as well. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. At the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ, we have this attractive humility and this alluring grace all in one spot. It's the dance of our redemption it's what God has done for us so that you and I can find once and for all forgiveness of sin when we put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior. Amen? I love it. I love it. What we've seen in the book of Ruth, 
thus far is absolutely true at the birth of our Savior Jesus. But back into Ruth chapter 2, as we get to the end of this chapter, I, I, I picture Naomi. Now, now I see the stage being changed, and, and all of a sudden we're in the home of Naomi. And it's kind of that statement, meanwhile, back at Naomi's house... And I envision this older Jewish woman, and she's just kind of wringing her hands. She's, she's recognized that, man, things have gone from bad to worse in her life, and she's just expecting them to go even further worse. And, and she's probably thinking in her mind, oh my goodness, maybe, maybe Ruth isn't coming back. Maybe she's run away, or worse yet, maybe she's hurt, or maybe even she's been attacked. I, I, maybe we're not going to be provided for at all. And she's just wringing her hands, and then all of a sudden the door opens. And she turns, and she sees Ruth. And Ruth has this 30-pound sack of barley grain over her shoulder. And and, and Ruth is carrying this this brown bag, leftovers from lunch, right? In a doggy bag. And, And she's got her hands full, maybe a little perspiration on her forehead, and she comes walking into the house. Naomi turns around, and she asks this question, and I'm, I'm wondering, I'm not sure, dear church, but I'm wondering if the question that Naomi asks in verse 18 is, is out of fear. <laughs> Notice what it says. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? She's probably thinking, uh-oh, she disobeyed the law. How in the world could she get so much gleaning in one day? She must have snuck more than she should have. I, I'm, I'm throwing that in the pages there, but that's my, my thinking. And, and she's just going, Hoy vey, what did you do, daughter? You know, she's just concerned that they're going to get in trouble now because Ruth, being a foreigner, didn't fully understand. But she goes on, and, 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 and what we see here is the change that God's loving kindness brings into Naomi's heart. She is, she's been in dark times. Those dark times have made her a bitter woman. But in this one day, this one day that's going to make all the difference, she sees the dance that we've just talked about of, of humility and grace now come home and she sees God's loving kindness in this. It's all over this. His chesed. And what I want to ask is, what changes take place because of God's loving kindness in Naomi's life? And the first is this. As we will see throughout the rest of this chapter, what God has done is He's taken the ordinary and He's brought it to the astonishing He has replaced it with the astonishing. The ordinary has become astonishing. She's amazed at how much is brought back. So she asks this question. Verse, uh, the middle of verse 19. Yeah, 19. And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today, you ready for it? Because the horns go, da-da-da-da, is Boaz! And Naomi drops her teeth. I mean, the bond that's there in her dentures literally comes unglued, and and she drops them. And she's amazed. She's overwhelmed. Who did you say did this? Boaz? Do you remember Boaz? He is a relative. 
Oh boy, oh boy. So this is an abundant thing. And, and so what does Naomi do? Verse 20, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And we're going to talk about that term next week. But just know this today, dear brothers and sisters. That term means that Boaz, if he is a gracious man... He has all the means to provide for these two widows. If he is a gracious man, if he is. We've already seen him act graciously, but Naomi doesn't know this yet. So she says, hey, he is a redeemer. Verse 21, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. See, there is this provision. See, see Naomi understands the ordinary has just become the astonishing. This is crazy. How do you by happen, how do you by chance happen to be in Boaz's field? And how does he happen to shower this grace upon you? She's amazed. She sees the ordinary turn into the astonishing. But notice verse 20, brothers and sisters. I, I told, I told uh, uh, Bob this morning and, and Dave as we were praying together, I just said verse 20 is the pivotal verse in chapter 2. Because not only does the ordinary, is it replaced by the astonishing, but, but notice bitterness, bitterness melts away into praise. Verse 20, it, it's a praise that she speaks. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Don't miss it. Whose kindness. You know what that word is? We talked about it last week. Chesed. Chesed. It is, it is God's loving kindness. It's, it, elsewhere, it's translated loving kindness. We said it is the most important Old Testament word that we could ever know. It speaks of a covenant-keeping God whose love is steadfast and strong. You know, we talk about love strong. We talk about being a church family that wants to grow in our love for one another and for this community. We want our love to be strong. But this word chesed... It is a promise of God's strong and steadfast love toward us. And notice what happens. Naomi goes from saying, I'm a bitter old woman, call me Mara, to saying his loving kindness continues to shower upon us. Even in the midst of the darkness. See, she's always said his providential plan is at work. She's always said he is sovereign. She's always said he's in control of all things. Now she recognizes that just as much as he's in control and reigns, so too is his chesed toward them. He's He loves, and it's a strong and steadfast love. And she gives this exuberant praise. Oh. She comes to understand, and her bitterness, it melts into this praise. And then finally, notice the remaining verses. And we see another thing that happens. We see that despair is transformed into hope. Despair is transformed into hope. Notice verse 22. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Now, i got to chuckle here a little bit, and i got to explain this. I, I picture, again, I'm picturing this as a play, and I'm picturing Naomi to be this old Jewish woman. I want to be careful not to get in trouble here. 
But I picture her a little bit like uh, Yenta in, in Fiddler on the Roof. Have you ever seen that? Some of you have. Some, some of you are going, what? I, like to, I don't like musicals, but I do like that one because it gives me insight a little bit into the Jewish culture. And, and Yenta is, is this old lady in the movie, and, and, and she is sung about as the matchmaker, right? Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, right? Find me a find, catch. Sorry, I've lost all the guys. All the guys are like, get me out of here. This is weird. But she's a matchmaker. I have a hunch what, what is going on in Naomi's mind is she's like Yenta. And, and, and Ruth has said, you know, and the weirdest thing, he said I could follow his young women into his field again and I could just keep gleaning there. And Naomi's going, Shazam! We got us a husband. And she's making a match. And so she just kind of, we can hear the wink almost in her statement. Yeah, you go ahead, Ruth. You go and you, you continue to, to glean in Boaz's field. Wink, wink. Right? And so the scripture finally ends with verse 23. So she, Ruth, kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the, both the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. <laughs> See, when God's loving kindness breaks through, and, and, and Naomi recognizes it has always been there, even in the darkest of times, things change for her. The ordinary is, is, is changed into the, the astonishing her bitterness melts into praise. And despair now is transformed into hope. There is hope for my daughter-in-law. She just might find a husband here. Not only are we going to be taken care of, but she just might get married. I might have grandkids yet. Woo! Isn't that what happened at the birth of Jesus, all these things? His loving kindness has been revealed at the birth of His Son. And things have changed since. Things have changed because Jesus has walked on this earth. Things have changed, brothers and sisters. The ordinary became the astonishing. God in human flesh. Wow. Not only that, but He humbled Himself as we said earlier and he died for me. That's astonishing. God in human flesh dying for me. Pain in that death for my sin. Amazing. Rising again on the third day. Who does that? Astonishing. Astonishing. And then the bitter now has turned into praise. See, the bitterness of our sin, which ends in death, now can end up in praise to the one who saved us because he has come to be our Savior as we sing about. And we see this despair, hopelessness. I am helpless and hopeless to save myself. I am in despair if I try to do it on my own. But because Jesus died for me and rose again, he is the one that's done all the work. I can simply have assurance of heaven when I put my faith and trust in him. See, it's all because Christ came to this earth whose birth we celebrate this time of year. That makes everything change. And I'm wondering this morning, do you know Jesus as your Savior?
I can think of no better time in, in, in the year than to take a moment here at Christmas and to make sure that I have put my faith, my trust in this one who has made everything different. I, I pray you will see the astonishing I pray that in putting your faith in Christ, you will, you will walk from bitterness <laughs> into praise for what He's done for you. I pray that you will find hope, assurance of heaven, if you would put your faith and trust in Jesus this morning. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to give any money. You don't have to attend church every week. You don't have to do a thing except to say, I believe who Jesus is. And I believe that he died on the cross for my sin and rose again on the third day. And I invite him to be my Savior. That's all you have to do. And you can do it right now. And you too will experience the loving kindness, the chesed of our God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and are so amazed by what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We are so overwhelmed with gratitude for what you have done in Christ Jesus for us. Thank you for this time in which we can celebrate our Savior's birth. And Lord, I would pray for anybody in this place who has not put their trust in Jesus. I pray that today would be the day. And then, Father, for those of us who have, may we be amazed all over again. May we be full of gratitude anew today for what you have done for us in showing us your loving kindness, in giving us your Son, that redemptive dance that took place where humility and grace came. Lord, we love you. And we know we can't say that without recognizing that you have first loved us. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.